Welcome to Charity Talks. I'm Brooke Tanefsky, and today I spoke with Andrea Goodman, the CEO of I Am ALS. I Am ALS was founded by Brian Wallach and his wife Sandra after he was diagnosed with ALS in 2017. ALS is a terminal neurodegenerative disease that robs people of their ability to move, speak, eat, and breathe, usually in less than five years. Brian and Sandra founded I Am ALS to empower people living with ALS to find a solution for their disease. As you'll hear, Andrea and I discuss how I Am ALS is a patient-led community that provides critical support and resources to those living with ALS, caregivers, and their loved ones. It empowers advocates to raise mainstream awareness and lead the revolution against ALS in driving the development of cures. It really is an amazing organization that is infusing hope in those suffering from this disease. So I hope you enjoy learning about what I Am ALS does. Welcome to Charity Talks. Today I'm speaking with Andrea Goodman, the CEO of I Am ALS. Andrea, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Brooke. Happy to be here. So to start, can you tell us about your background and how you came to I Am ALS? Sure. Well, obviously, I am the CEO of this nonprofit now, but I started my career in social work, actually. I got a master's degree in social work and really with a lifelong desire for social justice and supporting um, populations or individuals who have been victimized or marginalized in some way, which is a very broad line of work to want to go into. So it was hard, of course, like many new professionals to figure out what direction I wanted to take that in. Um, I then moved into public health after finding out that really my most passion and direction for that was in the healthcare space and spent some time in my career working on um, national awareness campaigns that drive behavior change, things like, you know, media around getting your flu shot or reproductive health, different kind of healthcare um, behavior topics, really across different populations. Um, I spent a lot of time in maternal and child health, which is a true passion of mine. Um, And then in the last, I've been saying a decade, but I think it's more than a decade now. I've been saying that for a few years. Um, I've been in this kind of what we call now patient advocacy space, which is a little bit of a buzzword, but um, it really happened organically, not just for me and my career, but I think for the sector um, that healthcare became not just about like the researchers and the doctors and the decision makers, but really also about the people who get a disease diagnosis and, and or parents who have a child who's diagnosed, which is one of the most um motivating experiences that one can have when all of a sudden you are fed up with the systems not working for you and stand up and say, I'm going to use my expertise um, to make change in this field. And we started to see like movements of patients and families and parents across different diseases or healthcare experiences really standing up um, and creating um, these areas of work that are now fitting within the industry. So I've kind of organically come to this space as I watched that happening and became really excited about the opportunity to engage people who were previously 
marginalized in their own experiences. Um, so now I've been in this patient advocacy space. I was most recently at the Colorectal Cancer Alliance, also an awesome organization doing incredible work in colon cancer and um, have been drawn to the work that IMALS has been doing to get into that as a movement. I'm somewhat new to the organization, but it's really well known in the space as making enormous widespread change um, in, in such a short period of time and really amplifying patient voices and the people in the community, the people living with ALS really being the drivers of like the incredible things they've accomplished. So that's the story of how I how I got here. Before we even get into really what the organization does, I think it's important to establish what is ALS. Yeah, that's a great question. I operate as if people know that, and I'm still learning so much about the disease. So ALS stands for amyotropic lateral sclerosis. Um, we typically use the acronym ALS. It's more commonly probably known as Lou Gehrig's disease. So a lot of your listeners have probably heard of that, named after the baseball player who, of course, was diagnosed with ALS. Um, it's a neurodegenerative disease. So it affects the nerve cells um, in the brain and spinal cord and starts to impact the entire body. So it slowly kills motor neurons, um, which affects how people control their muscles that we all need for every movement, like how we move, how we speak, how we breathe. Um, and that's about the end of what I know about the science. And also what I've learned about ALS is that the prognosis and progression for every single person who's diagnosed with it is different. So we noticed that some people who are diagnosed lose their ability to move their limbs first and some have speech decline first. Um, so it really manifests differently. What is the most um, unfortunate and hard part about ALS is that is 100% terminal now. So um, our goal, of course, is to change that and make ALS a chronic disease with cures. Right now, it's still 100% terminal and the exact cause is really not known. So that's about the extent of where we are in terms of the science today. And can you also talk a little bit about how I Am ALS came to be founded? Yeah, so it's a pretty new organization. It was founded in 2019 by the incredible Brian Wallach and his wife, Sandra Abravaya. Um, when Brian was diagnosed um, at age 37, so really young, and actually the story is that Brian was diagnosed the day they brought their second daughter home from the hospital. So it's hard to imagine two successful 30-something professionals who have started their family and have two little kids at home. Um, um, Brian and Sandra actually met on the Obama presidential campaign in 2008. So they're both like incredibly magnetic, successful, and connected people who are living a beautiful life. Powerhouses in their own careers in Chicago. He's a lawyer. Sandra's a nonprofit executive and communications expert. Um, and after his diagnosis, powerhouses that they are, um, started, of course, like gathering all the information they could and thinking about how they can really defeat this thing. Like what, it, what solutions could we put in place and realize that no one else living with ALS, um, at that moment really had the opportunity to pull together the connections and shift the system like they did. So they really utilized their network of 
political connections and that um, their political organizing tactics and grassroots organizing expertise to build a community of people to make change um, and move everything faster. And we know there are amazing ALS advocates and organizations that have been doing work for decades. And there was the ice bucket challenge. Some of your um, listeners might remember um, that drove some awareness for ALS. And so there were some moments in time, but really after like decades and decades, there was very little scientific progress and it's still terminal. So they were like, what can we do to, we got to act. We got to do something quickly to save Brian and all of the people with ALS of this generation. So um, they brought together a community of people with living with ALS and connected all of their various networks to um, make change. And now it is an incredible community. Um, I might be getting ahead of your questions a little bit, but um, has made so much impact, which I can't take credit for because I was not even a part of the organization for a lot of it. But they have, have um, raised almost a billion dollars in additional ALS research funds at the federal level. Really incredible. So advocated and turned around our small resources for our small organization of about $10 million into like a hundredfold, um, 954, I think, million dollars specifically in federal funding dedicated to ALS research. So that's one of the many ways in which they're changing the landscape. Oh, and I would say, for anyone who's interested in more about like the founding of this movement and Brian and Sandra's story as founders, there is a documentary called No Ordinary Campaign, um, which tells the story of this beautiful um, experience and how it's changing the game in ALS. So I um, just a shout out for anyone who's interested in watching that docu- documentary. It is kind of on the road right now at a variety of film festivals and our organization has it available for listeners who might be interested. I think it is really interesting because, you know, so many different types of people are truly affected. And obviously, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But I am curious if you could share, you know, you do so many different things, but what is like the organization's central mission? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking that, Brooke. So yeah, so now they brought together this community. They were like, let's change the system. So now what do we do? Um, There's a few um, primary priorities. Our mission is really about driving to treatments and cures. So our ultimate goal here is making sure that ALS is chronic, that the future generations and hopefully this one um, diagnosed with ALS um, will have treatments available to extend their life and ultimately not have it be fatal. Um, So, but we do a variety of things to help us get there. Um, one is central to our mission is that it's a patient-led community, the movement that I spoke of. So one thing that wasn't happening in ALS is allowing people who live with ALS and their families to use their voice and come together and be the advocates for change. Um, even those who don't have a voice literally anymore should not be silenced. They have such incredible experience, insights professional expertise from prior to a diagnosis to lend to the movement. So central to it is really about empowering a community of people living with the disease and their families and advocates to be central to that movement. That's a really important part of the value. We then, our mission is about mobilizing those people to get to the goals we want to see in the world. So 
Um, they've been instrumental to driving um, key legislation called Act for ALS that was signed into law by President Biden at the end of um, 2021, and that enables additional research funding as well as expanded access to treat experimental treatments for people living with ALS, um, variety of different other federal legislation that enables better access um, to treatments and trials for um, patients, for veterans who have ALS within the veteran system, et cetera. And then um, larger, as I referenced earlier, buckets of federal funding for ALS research within various federal agencies to make sure that we're seeing um, scientific milestones and just like more answers so we can learn more about this disease. So it's really about bringing those patient voices to the center and driving a movement and that collective power for change. Um, the other thing I would say about our mission and that happens simultaneously is that we provide support to the community, which is a really important give and take. We cannot just convene the movement without making sure that their needs are met emotionally and otherwise as part of a community in this experience that they're living, which is, of course, really, really hard. So we have a variety of support specialists um, on staff and ALS support team. They're dedicated professionals. They're trained in social work. They support clients one-on-one. We have support groups for different groups of people, people living with ALS, current caregivers, a bereavement group. We have a peer support initiative, which is a program that matches mentors and mentees who have similar experiences to provide support, um, and an online resource center with a variety of information and resources on ALS and the um, helping people through that lived clinical experience. So um, I would say the biggest things to take away are like this whole area of support and then the community movement, which is like instrumental in driving change. It's really incredible. We just launched an impact report that's on our website of the things that this community has done in just five years of existence. I've never seen anything like it before, having been a part of a lot of incredible nonprofits. It is amazing that people and the patients are really at the core of what you're doing. And so I am curious if you have any stories that people have shared with I Am ALS. Yeah, so many. I mean, I wouldn't share individual people's stories without their voices, but I would say we hear stories across the spectrum. So one are just like the um, testimonials of what being a part of a movement like this does to their well-being and sense of self, not to mention what it does for the world, right? So like we think about bringing people in for the power of their collective impact and what it does to policy or what it does to awareness or fundraising or all of the different outcomes that we're looking for. But when you think about, and there is data to support this, that when you engage people in the process as experts, um, it supports their quality of life. And we hear that time and time again, that this like turning pain into purpose um, is so meaningful and changes the trajectory of people's lives while they're living with disease and frankly dying with disease. It's so important to have that purpose and that sense of community. And then for caregivers who are experiencing this other like incredibly grief-stricken and painful experience to give them that outlet and support. So tons and tons of stories of what 
being a part of the movement and being supported feels like. Um, there's also so much that we've learned, like stories about the experience with ALS, that being a community-centered and patient-centered organization, we hear. So um, experiences being misdiagnosed, um, not being able to get what they need from the system and the system working against them, having challenges getting access and coverage by their insurance company. Um, all of those, like the financial toxicity and the enormous burden placed on families. ALS is an incredibly financially burdensome disease, not just because of the medical reality, but also like what it means to need home health care and um, all of the other implications for costs. So we are also the keeper of a lot of those stories that help tell the narrative of what people need that then goes into like, what are the solutions that we want to see in policy and in systems um, that will ultimately help the world of ALS for everybody in the future. And now, hopefully now we're making some change for them too. And I know you've talked a bit about some of the different resources that I am ALS provides, but can you talk a little bit more about some of, I know you have a variety of community teams that focus on different areas. So what are some of these different areas? Yes. Thank you for asking this question because I am just in awe of these community teams. So, and I've been talking about it in kind of an amorphous way. So like people become part of a movement, but how this actually works on a day-to-day basis is that um, the people who are people living with ALS, caregivers, people who are advocates who care so much about this come together on calls. Um, of course, like in this post-pandemic environment, we have like the amazingness of Zoom now and they come together and um, the community historically had decided like, what are the key topics that are important to us that we want to address in ALS for the landscape, for the field And they defined, um, I think now it's 10 community teams and always evolving a little bit of key interests that matter to them where there are gaps in the field. So for example, there's a veterans team. Um, There's um, a very clear um, gap for veterans in that the U.S. people who have been in the U.S. military, veterans, U.S. veterans are more than twice as likely to develop ALS as the general population. And we don't, we haven't fully uncovered research on that, but we know that veterans are really important subpopulation in ALS for us to understand that scientifically and also make sure they're getting their needs met and access to veteran services. So um, the veterans team is a group that meets to raise awareness for veteran specific ALS issues. And as an example, the way the these teams work, they come together and create a scope of work and and goals and a like mission for their team to address things that come up um, for veterans in any given, you know, year or period of time. So there's also one for a legislative team, of course, focus on specific federal policy issues um, and appropriations for um, research dollars. There's a familial ALS team, which is focused on raising awareness of genetic ALS, which is in about 10% of people living with ALS have a genetic form. And so awareness is super important because people should know if um, they should have access to genetic testing and know that genetic testing is available to them so that they can know their risk of developing ALS within 
their lifetime. So um, that's an enormously important body of work. There's a community outreach team that's focused on engaging and educating people on ALS. Um, They go to like college classes and um, different providers and doctors and organizations and do, they have something called the Tim Lowry ALS panel series where a panel of people living with ALS and impacted by ALS will present on their experience to educate people, which is just an incredible like community centered model of doing that. There's a many shades of ALS community team who brings attention to and resources for the mental, physical, and social health of people living with uh, people of color living with ALS. Um, and that's really important to counter the m- misperception I think that's out there around ALS being like an old white man's disease. We don't think about young people with ALS. We don't think about Black Americans with ALS. We really have this like vision of what it looks like. And it's so important to highlight the experiences of people who are not um, in that population. So, and then there's a, a bunch of others who are equally critical, but I don't need to go down the list. You get a sense of what it is, but that's really how they operate. And it's really incredible how community driven it is that they set the agenda, they do the work, and we are there organizationally to facilitate the incredible expertise that comes out of those teams. Yeah, and I know you brought up genetics, and there's been a lot of recent advances in understanding ALS, particularly in the on the genetic level. And so I was just wondering if you could discuss some of that research as well as current research that you believe has potential to make a significant impact in the fight against ALS in the future. Yeah, so I can answer that as best I know as a non-scientist, like understanding the space and where we as a community and a movement have an opportunity to impact it. Um, but um, as I mentioned earlier, and and especially because I've also been a part of other diseases like cancer, where there's, we're much more advanced in our knowledge, it's really unfortunate to see how little we still know about ALS. Um, so understanding um, how ALS manifests, what causes it, et cetera, is going to be so important to finding targeted treatments in the future in this like age of precision medicine and targeted treatment pathways. So um, the field is getting there and there have been some advances that I understand. Um, one is, as I mentioned, the genetic and familial, as we call it, an ALS pathway, um, which is the identification of genes that mutate that help up will help us, you know, target those specific genes with treatment. Um, there are currently four genes that are known to have mutations that cause ALS. I think that likely more will be identified over time, and that would be a huge success for the field, just learning more about it. The most common one is referred to as C9. I don't think that's the full name for the gene. Um, again, like there was a lot of scientific jargon here, but that's the most kind of well-known and common, um, genetic mutation in ALS. And then there's also one called SOD1, which has been in the news a lot lately and like a big breakthrough, even though it affects very, a very small percentage of people with ALS that there was a recent, um, FDA approval actually this year and with our community advocating for this need of a drug called um, Calcody, um, which treats that. It's a it's a therapy specifically for that to people who have that type of ALS, SOD1. So, and it's a particularly like 
aggressive and fast progressing, horrific form of ALS. So having a therapy for those individuals is a huge um, advancement for this, for this space. So um, that's one area that is hugely important. And so you can tell why like having access to genetic testing and awareness of the importance of that is really big because if you are diagnosed with ALS or even before, because they're doing some trials now around um, pre-diagnosis and predisposition to ALS, if you have that genetic mutation, you're born with that genetic mutation, if there's a potential to have therapy that would significantly um, delay progression and extend your life because you're on that treatment early. So hugely important. And then the second big area of science that I understand, this is not exhaustive again, because I'm not a scientist, but a big area for ALS is around biomarkers, which is a term that's used really across disease as a marker to monitor in the body to understand how something either is caused or is it diagnosed or a marker we use to understand progression. Um, so often not genetic, we're talking about like broadly in ALS, we need different biomarkers to understand how things happen in the body. And then we can target, um, not only target specific markers, but also understand progression in different types of ALS differently since it's such a heterogeneous disease. So that's a huge area of science for ALS. There have been some advancements this year in the literature um, and really looking forward to improvements over the next few years and seeing how that science evolves because it's going to be game changing for people living with the disease. Of course, there's still a long way to go. And so very important question, how can those who want to help us do so? So thanks for asking that question. It's really important. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, what's so important and wonderful about this organization is that it's truly an open movement for anyone to be involved. And um, we do have, of course, people at the center of that movement are the people living with ALS and their families and caregivers who have lost the one. But we also have incredible advocates who just latch on to this cause and see the beauty in all we've accomplished and want to be a part of it. So I really welcome anyone who's listening, who's interested, um, especially if you, of course, know someone or have been affected by ALS to get involved. Being a part of the movement sounds intimidating, but you can just go to our website and, you know, participate, like sign up for our newsletter or do a community action you can follow our channels, our social media channels, and share things. We're at imals.org um, for, I think, all of our handles. Um, you can join one of those community teams if you're really interested in action and putting your um, passion and expertise to work um, and joining our campaign and rewriting the story of, of ALS. We're really doing so much incredible work and welcome anyone to be a part of it. Um, lastly, I'll say giving is also an option. Of course, as a small organization, we really rely on individual donations to make all of this work. And we have a lot of ambitious plans to get us to treatments and cures in the future. So any amount helps. We do have a donate button on our website, imals.org, for anyone who is interested. And um, the incredible thing, as I mentioned earlier, is that 
we really get the best bang for our buck in return on investment. So IMALS has invested only about $10 million so far over five years. We've had about $2 million budget a year, and we've secured almost a billion dollars $954 million in federal funding for ALS research, among many other successes. But when you think about that return on investment and you think about the you know, making a donation to an organization and where your money's going to go, um, it's really incredible to know how much impact we're making with those dollars. Great. And lastly, is there anything you'd like to add that we might not have covered or even just reiterate before we go? Oh, that's a great question. Thanks, Brooke. I would say, you know, one, ALS is terminal and a really devastating disease. And it's also not as rare as people think. It's technically classified as a rare disease. But one reason we it's rare is because people don't live long after their diagnosis. So the pool of people is constantly, it's growing, but it's shrinking. And so just be aware of ALS in your world. Obviously, now all of your listeners will know that I am ALS and we are here as a resource. And it also, as a devastating disease, it, it steals people's voices and their independence and their sense of self. So um, it becomes hard to speak up about the disease and activate um, when it's killing you through taking your voice. So um, I just want everyone to know that people living with ALS have a lot of expertise and a lot to say, and we all have to be willing to listen. Thank you so much for coming on, and I, I really appreciate it, so thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Brooke. I really appreciate you telling the story of I am ALS.